is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. More questions than answers now when it comes to the attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Police say he was attacked by a man with a hammer after officers arrived to the scene early this morning and found both men holding the hammer. We go in-depth into how the suspected attacker could have slipped past any security safeguards. Media reports say the suspect asked, where's Nancy? Which raises questions about political extremism and violence, which we will also explore. And this year could be one of the worst in recent memory for the flu. Yeah, Charles, there's COVID, of course, the flu. Now the World Health Organization is out with a a list of deadly fungi. Yeah, we go in depth into how much we need to know about fungal infections. Elon Musk, you've probably heard about this. He now officially owns Twitter. We look into what happens next for the platform. A volcano rumbling in Hawaii, which has scientists wondering if it's set to erupt sometime soon. And a rock and roll legend has died. We look at the life and times of Jerry Lee Lewis and his influence on the music world. We start, though, with what's turning into a bit of a strange story with the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. With us is Shara Stein, Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for being with us. So briefly walk us through what we know and what we think we know. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Basically, early this morning, a assailant broke into the Pelosi residence in San Francisco Speaker Nancy Pelosi was not home, but her husband, Paul Pelosi, was. Um, The assailant used a hammer um, and hit uh, Paul Pelosi. The suspect, um, who we now know is named David DePape, um, was booked on suspicion of attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, and elder abuse. Um, Paul Pelosi has been in the hospital. and has been treated. We don't have a, a update, but he's expected to make a full recovery. And that's sort of the basics that we know. We've learned bits throughout the day, but there's still a lot more we need to know. Yeah, sure. We were getting reports, of course, that he was hit in the body, but also in the head, and that, in fact, he did undergo brain surgery. Can you update us in any way about that? We actually haven't been able to confirm that he's had brain surgery. We're still determining. Um, it may That may have been some misinformation. We do know um, that he has been in the hospital, but we're, it's, it's unclear if he actually um, needed to undergo brain surgery. Okay, so now, of course, the question that I think many people want to know is, didn't they have any kind of security? I mean, she is the Speaker of the House, a very powerful woman. Uh, they live in a pretty ritzy neighborhood. Uh, considering the political climate now in the country, they had no security? Well, so we know that Nancy Pelosi herself does have protection from Capitol Police as the Speaker of the House, she has that. Um, Capitol Police was unable to comment on whether or not they protect family members, but as far as I know, they typically do not. Um, We've also know that some people in her neighborhood do have private security, but we've been unable to confirm if her block is one of those. So it's really unclear her house was the site of a protest. Her garage was spray painted in January 2021. Obviously, a very different situation, but we're still kind of trying to determine how much security was actually at her home if she's not there. 
Right. So the suspect himself is somebody that apparently has had some uh, weird uh, stuff in the past, right, on social media and Facebook. Uh, is the thinking that this was politically motivated or is the thinking that this is somebody who is mentally disturbed and happened to know that Nancy Pelosi resided there or what? Yeah, it's the police say it's still being determined, but there has been reports saying that the attacker entered the home asking where is Nancy, which was also said during the January 6th attack in some footage. Um, the, the, the person, we've looked at what appear to be some of his online postings, and they do appear to talk about some typically right-wing extremist things. Um, he's posted about the far-right QAnon conspiracy therapy, uh, theory. So it's still unclear. It could be both. It's just unclear. There have been a lot of attacks on lawmakers in recent years. I think everyone's pretty familiar with January 6th, but there's also been lawmakers who were shot at during a baseball practice, folks like Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington State, who was targeted by a man carrying a gun outside her home earlier this year. There's just been a lot of violence and threats of violence towards lawmakers in the last few years. Yeah, you can add the uh, attempted kidnapping as well of uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the, the governor of, uh, of Michigan, to that that long list. And with that, from your sources and what you see and hear working in the nation's capital, um, are you are you hearing more about the need for greater protection for uh, members of Congress, especially those in higher positions? You know, Nancy Pelosi, second in line to the presidency, uh, more protection for them and their families. I haven't heard as much about their families. Um, there actually was some funding put together after the January 6th attack. So each member of Congress is eligible to receive up to $10,000 for their home security system. That just started in August, though, so it's unclear how many have actually taken up and used that money. Um, but if it's their home security system, that likely will protect members of their family. So it's I, I would suspect we might see some more discussion about that. There's been a lot of, of talk in recent months about this, but I suspect we see more after this really scary attack. All right. Shira, thank you again. That's Shira Stein, Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. Again, police have not explained the motive for the attack, if they know what it is. But this does raise questions and concerns about the safety of lawmakers in this very volatile political climate. With us is Susan Stokes, director of the Chicago Center on Democracy at the University of Chicago. Thank you very much for being with us. So, uh, as I said, we don't know yet, uh, and whether the police know or not, they're not saying what the actual motive was, if this was a, a deranged individual or somebody who, at least on the surface, appears to have some political uh, leanings. But what does this all say about the atmosphere that this country currently finds itself in? Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We're in a very violent period, a period of uh, tremendous kind of, um, you know, violent instincts, violent actions by citizens, sometimes encouraged or at least not discouraged by political leaders. Um, and I don't think I have to remind anybody that almost the definition of democracy is a system in which we use nonviolent means to resolve our, our our conflicts. So the more these kinds of events happen, and as you say, we don't know exactly what was going on with this individual, but the more that our members of Congress and our political leadership are um, are exposed to violent threats and actual acts of violence, the more we move away from being a democracy. 
Susan, what can be done? Uh, if we look into the future from now, how concerned should we be when it comes to the potential for more of these types of attacks? I think we should be very concerned. I think that the level is unbelievable. I think maybe we've gotten a little used to it over the past few years, but the New York Times reports that there have been almost 10,000 threats against members of Congress um, since 2016. And um, the, the, the rate of them, the pace of them has been picking up. And we also have a lot of, a lot of threatening activities against um, lower level folks, um, people involved in election administration and so on. And so this is of great concern. One of, you know, there's, there, what can be done? So one of the main things that has to happen is our political leadership has to denounce in no uncertain terms any use or threat of use of violence, um, be it, you know, political violence of any kind. And I was very encouraged to see very quick responses by the congressional leadership, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Mitch McConnell came up, came out very quickly denouncing this, this attack. Uh, so did Kevin McCarthy. So did Steve Scalise, who of course was the victim of a terrible, uh, uh, gun attack in 2017. So did Susan Collins, who had a more minor attack on her home. Um, that's all good. I, as far as I have seen, there has not been any, um, any mention of this event on the part of the, of the de, de facto leader of the Republican party, who, who is Donald Trump. And, um, you know, we have learned a lot about the inciting of violence um, on January 6th um, by then President Trump. We have, um, you know, seen from the very beginning of his campaign and going back to 2016, um, verbal violence, encouraging violence at his rallies. It's time for anyone who wants to be the leader of a major party in a democracy to distance himself from that kind of violence and to speak out very clearly and very uh, in a very nonpartisan way against such actions. You know, uh, whenever these sort of uh, attacks or incidents happen, there's usually somebody, and maybe they've already said it, who says something along the lines of, this is not who we are. But Susan, suppose this is who we are. Well, I think, unfortunately, we are who we make ourselves to be. And we, and as voters and as common citizens, we're very responsive to our political leadership. And so really the buck stops with our political leadership. I mean, we're a country that, you know, has a long history of Wild West and, and, you know, we have, um, you know, we have a, a, a lot of violence in our culture, no, no doubt about it. But, um, it's always the case that the, the political violence, the degree to which people are willing to act on, on, on sort of violent instincts and also to be given beliefs that lead them to be so angry and so morally outraged that they would turn to violence. That again is really on our political leadership. So they can turn us into that, that kind of people who we don't want to be, or they can bring out the, the better version of ourselves. I, I don't think we certainly don't need to be this kind of people, but on um, this kind of country, but um, we are, you know, rapidly going in that direction. And it's really a, a source of great concern for anyone who cares about um, the health of American democracy. Yeah, Susan, we, we've all seen the video, of course, of the, the shooting of John F. Kennedy when he was sitting in the back waving to people from the, the back of uh, a convertible. Uh, in, in Texas, in, in Dallas that day. Now, of course, the president is in a fortress, the beast, as they call it, the limousine that he travels in, uh, bulletproof windows. Uh, as terrible as things are right now, is this simply the cost of living in democracy? 
I think it's the cost of living in a system that where democracy is under attack. I mean, it's true. We had we've had periods. So in the 1960s, I'm certainly old enough to remember, um, you know, the, the the assassination of JFK, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, um, Martin Luther King, um, countless uh, uh, acts of violence in, in the course of the civil rights movement and so on. And, um, you know, so it's it's not um, it's not that we have don't have a history of that kind but what i think is happening right now and has been happening for the past few years is in in incitement and encouragement by leaders um elected leaders uh, people running for office um to sort of get their bases all worked up and prepared to engage in actions of acts of violence and that is not at all what it is like to live in a democracy it certainly doesn't have to yeah. be I, you know, our, um, you know, people from other countries, advanced democracies look across at us and, and are, you know, are, are frightened on our behalf at, at, at the levels of violence that we've reached. And, you know, there are violent assassinations, political assassinations have happened in a number of countries. I and mean, that's, that's not, we're not unique in that sense, but we are really going very quickly down a path toward the public being riled up to acts of violence by political leaders. And there's nothing democratic about that. Okay. Susan, thank you. Again, that's Susan Stokes, director of the Chicago Center on Democracy at the University of Chicago. And a little bit later on, uh, Elon Musk has already fired some top people at Twitter as he takes over. And early rock and roll star Jerry Lee Lewis has died. We take a look into his influence on music. Right now, though, doctors warning that this flu season is shaping up to be rough. Maybe the most severe we've seen in about 13 years. Record number of people are already in the hospital because of it uh, across the country. Back with us now, friend of the show, Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Schaffner, thank you for joining us again. Uh, Much is being made of this triple-demic COVID, the flu, now this, especially for children, this risk of RSV. Tell me, is the easing up of COVID restrictions making things that much worse right about now? Yes, that's the way we think it is, fellas. After a long period of time where we were social distancing, mask wearing, not going out and about, not traveling, children not attending schools, but getting uh, their education virtually, Now we're all together again. We've reversed all those things, providing an extraordinary opportunity for these viruses to spread. And flu has started early and vigorously, particularly in the southeastern and southwestern parts of the country. It's now creeping up the East Coast. So it's here. And also this, as you say, other virus, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which infects Uh, most prominently young children and also older adults. So is this flu season shaping up to be so severe because uh, people uh, for the past couple of years, uh, because of the pandemic, have been taking all these measures to shield themselves from, from being exposed to germs? Or is this a particularly pernicious strain of the virus? Well, it's not the strain of the virus. There's no dominant strain out there. And as far as we can tell, there have been no noteworthy changes in the virus. In fact, there's a rather good match with the viruses circulating and those in the vaccine. So that's good news. We think it's more opportunities for the virus to spread because we're all out and about. 
Now, this question about immunity, because we haven't experienced this virus, have our immune systems sort of gone to sleep? Uh, This does indeed play a role with the RSV infections because young children hadn't been exposed. Um, We're not so sure about flu, but certainly the viruses have taken off in an unseasonal way, which has all of we epidemiologists flummoxed. The warnings we're getting now about the flu season, and I I understand a lot of it's based on the fact that we're getting a rather ominous preview of flu season from our friends down under in Australia. Well, different things happened south of the equator. The Australians had a very prominent early season. It started with a big surge, and then it abated right away. But things were a bit different in Chile and in other parts of the Southern Hemisphere. So it's difficult to make a one-to-one correlation, but (laughs) we do follow the Australian experience pretty carefully and their early vigorous influenza season seems to be mirrored with what's happening right now. So you mentioned that the good news is that uh, this year's flu vaccine is a good match. The question is, what's the definition of a good match? And then there's the bad news, which is the uptake of uh, the vaccine. People taking it is not what it should be, is it? It isn't. And that's giving me some heartburn. You know, the influenza vaccine is a good but not perfect vaccine, but it is the best protection we have against severe disease and hospitalization. In that sense, it's very similar to the COVID vaccine. And particularly for older people, people with underlying illnesses of any kind, people who are immune compromised, it's really important that they get the best protection against severe disease that we can provide. And the acceptance of the vaccine that is the influenza vaccine, is going slowly. This must be part of the general vaccine fatigue that's out there, I'm afraid. Dr. Schaffner, thank you again. That's Dr. William Schaffner, Professor Professor of Preventative Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. Only a flu or COVID or RSV, for that matter, if they... They don't worry you. Maybe fungal infections should worry you. World Health Organization now out with a ranking of fungi that threatens human health. It lists 19 fungal diseases that kill more than a million people a year across the globe and are a factor in the deaths of some 5 million others. With us now is Andrew Jacobs, health and science reporter for The New York Times, who just wrote a piece of this uh, a really kind of scary list. Uh, Jacob, Andrew, thanks for being with us. So uh, people, when they think about infections that might be resistant to medication, I think they automatically nowadays, they think mostly about bacterial infections and antibiotic overuse, that sort of thing. And I suspect most people, maybe even a lot of doctors, don't think in terms of a fungus infection. Is that accurate? That's uh, that's exactly the case, <clears throat> um, and in fact, fungal uh, you know drug resistant fungal infections uh, you know probably kill more people uh, than bacterial infections. And I think the this report you know is a much needed kind of spotlight on the problem because, like you say, a lot of doctors uh, often miss these infections. 
Uh, and, you know, someone who has cancer, for example, might actually die from a fungal infection, but you wouldn't know it on the death certificate and people just assume they died of cancer when in fact they were killed by a, a, a fungal infection that probably was resistant to existing drugs. Yeah, Andrew, this time of year, we're so concerned about COVID, the flu, RSV for the children, especially. What surprised you the most in researching this story? Well, I think the the the, the number of infections or a number of, of sort of deadly fungal infections that are out there uh, and also just how, uh, you know, the, the pipeline for new drugs has really dried up and there haven't really been, you know, there's there are basically four classes of drugs out there to fight fungal infections. Um, and there, you know, haven't really been many new drugs in, in many years, uh, and there are very few in the pipeline. So I think that's a big concern. And part of the, the reason the WHO sort of issued this report is they, they want governments and drug companies and doctors to focus on this, because I think, uh, you know, it's, it's ex- extremely under sort of appreciated as a threat. Are there so few drugs or so few in the pipeline, as you put it, because what is, is it just not... Uh, for pharmaceutical companies profitable to do the research that would be needed to develop them? Yeah, you know, these are, it's very, you know, it can cost over a billion dollars to develop a new drug. And, you know, you, you, you want to know that you're going to have a return on investment. Uh, and I think for a lot of drug companies, the, the focus is elsewhere. You know, there's much more money to be made in, you know, oncology drugs, for example, or, or developing a cure for Alzheimer's. And I think that the general sense is that these are not profitable drugs. So that's sort of that um, that's something that needs to change. Are government officials, are, are the companies as well prepared to do more from what you've learned in your reporting, prepared to do more to help combat these fungi? Well, I mean, the CDC, you know, has been focused on the this problem, uh, perhaps more than other governments. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a, a there's a fungus uh, called Candida auris that has been sort of making the rounds of nursing homes and hospitals in the last few years. And, um, you know, there, there's been a lot of attention focused on that. So I think, uh, you know, hopefully with this report, there will be more focus and trying to get uh, the system to sort of, you know, to, to, to grapple with this. Is there some commonality in how most people come down with deadly fungus infections? Yeah, so so a lot of these infections uh, occur in people with uh, existing pre-existing health conditions, whether it be someone who had an organ transplant, uh, someone with leukemia, HIV, uh, you know, illnesses that sort of weaken your immune system. And a lot of these infections, especially in the U.S., are actually caught in hospitals. Um, you know, hospital-acquired uh, Im- infections are a huge problem. And, um, you know, that's something that um, is also often overlooked. And and the CDC, for example, when they do identify a hospital that's the source of an outbreak, they, they do not identify the name of the hospital. And so there's a, bit, a lot of secrecy around this problem. And that's, you know, that's a really um, sort of a, an obstacle in some ways to dealing with it. But I, but the, the, the truth is, is that a lot of these infections are, you know, they come through the intravenous tube or the you know, the mechanical breathing, a tube that goes down your throat, that's how they enter the body. Um, and, uh, you know, infection control, especially during the um, the p- pandemic, has really lagged because everyone was focusing on COVID. Uh, so there was, you know, a big spike in, in um, these infections over the last two years. And so I think, you know, that is that is really something that we should think about. These are these are being acquired largely in hospitals, at least in this country. There are numerous fungus conditions, I understand. So is there one or a couple that that more or less tops the charts, most contagious, most deadly? 
Well, the, the Candida auris, I think, is, 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 is that, that's, there's four that they call the sort of critical priority um, fungi. And Candida auris is really the one that um, is getting a lot of attention. It's only, it was only identified in 2009 in Japan. And since then, it has spread to more than four dozen countries. Uh, so it's, and it's very, it's really does well in nursing homes and sort of long-term care facilities. And, um, and it's a real, real problem trying to eradicate it. And, you know, as much as hospitals might try to disinfect a room, it's, it, it often persists. It's, it's just a real tough uh, bug to, to, to vanquish. I'm curious about something you said that in the past couple of years, because of the pandemic, these uh, fungal infections have increased in hospitals. But that to me sounds kind of curious. One would have thought that because of the pandemic, when hospitals were, were really kind of doubling down on infection control out of concern that patients would come down with COVID, why wouldn't they also do that for a host of other things, including fungal infections? Well, I think the kind of infection control people were focused on were sort of, you know, masks and gloves and things that, uh, you know, for a virus uh, that this and fungi are very, very different the way they spread. The other thing is a lot of infection control programs were sort of uh, suspended or lost people who were sort of um, directed to other kinds of programs because it was such a crisis. So a lot of infection control programs, which a lot of them are, are, are relatively new uh, and maybe the funding is not that solid, got shifted. So there was a de-emphasis on that, even though there was a hyper uh, attention focus on sort of controlling the virus. So they're really, it's, they're almost two different beasts. Um, and, and, and so that's part of the problem. And then also with COVID, you had a lot of people ending up in the ICU, which is where a lot of these infections uh, were acquired. So that's, the, that's sort of the, the reason there's this correlation between the, the pandemic and this a spike in fungal infection, because they were acquired by people with COVID in these ICUs because they were on breathing machines and that's how they got the, how they got the pathogen in the first place. Okay. Andrew, thank you. That's Andrew Jacobs, health and science reporter for the New York Times. Elon Musk now officially in charge of Twitter. One of his first acts was firing the CEO and other top executives. This comes after months of back and forth between uh, Musk and the company about whether he really would buy it. Uh, concern is growing that misinformation could spread now, though, as we said yesterday, Musk promised to advertisers it would become Twitter would become a free for all, not become a free for all hellscape. Let's get that right. Not become a free for all hellscape. So what happens now? Adam Raziri, digital marketing expert. He's with the agency partner Interactive joins us now. Adam, thanks for being here on KNX. Three execs fired already. More apparently on their way out. Uh, changes to come. Uh, what? do you see moving forward with with twitter hey great to be with you you know when you buy a new car you can pretty much drive it wherever you want as long as it's within legal limits right so i think we're going to see kind of elon musk drive this new car wherever he wants and and he's doing the right thing you got to get in there and you got to get rid of the existing leadership team because basically you're 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 totally changing how things are are run right so he's starting at the top he's going to work his way down and we're going to see not only the organization change, but we're also going to see the actual product itself change, the application. Elon Musk is talking about turning Twitter into a super app. And, and that might sound kind of like a lofty idea, or you might just be wondering, well, what the heck is a super app? But uh, in a nutshell, he's going to try and make Twitter something that really is essential to our everyday lives beyond just, you know, throwing uh, the initial, the, the little jab here and there or, or updating people on what we're doing, you know, on the hour. 
uh, we could potentially see Twitter being used as a way to process transactions, a way to pay people, a way to um, share information, but also uh, maybe do even uh, more complicated or, or sophisticated file sharing. Uh, there might even be some integrations with some of the applications that we're more familiar with, like email and uh, other forms of, of communication. So, well, the, I mean, it's going to change. The yeah. company's going to change. A lot's happening here. Right. And, and, and some of the change that you just uh, enumerated sounds like it could like it could be good. But some of the change, of course, could also be pretty bad. I mean, there's already a lot of experimentation just since he's announced that he's taken over with uh, some extremist types sort of trying to see how far they can take it in what they can right. now say on, on Twitter. And and there's an open question about whether former uh, former President Trump is going to be allowed back on. And, and Musk right. sent out this weird tweet this morning, not weird, but it's kind of interesting, I suppose, where he said that Twitter will be forming a content moderation council with right. widely diverse viewpoints, no major content decisions, or account reinstatements, and I presume that is referring to at least mostly to Mr. Trump, will happen before that council convenes. So what is he talking about? Yeah, n- n- nothing too crazy right now beyond, I guess, Kanye West's account being restored. Um, you know, Elon Musk really is trying to ensure that uh, this application is something that does facilitate and allow free speech to be a thing. And, you know, we've seen kind of some of the moves and some of the attention on these these words misinformation and disinformation actually go so far as to attack lawful speech. And I don't think that that's really what Elon Musk wants to see from a social media application. So when it comes to what the what the app is going to not allow, that's definitely definitely remains to be remains to be seen, especially when it comes down to, frankly, artificial intelligence running these content moderation decisions. You know, how does it identify certain keywords that are problematic and and how does it turn up the volume or turn it down? Uh, on one from one conversation to the next we're we're going to see a lot of changes here and and you're right a lot of the users that are on twitter right now they're trying to kind of test the water and see what's really different and you might see some people tweeting some crazy things right Think, things that you would typically expect uh might result in a ban or a suspension of sorts um it, it's kind of like a little kid trying to see how far they can get with uh from, with one parent from the next right so you know, I would just advise people, you know what, guys, the stove is hot. Don't touch it. Just wait, wait to see what happens here. Um, we're going to see Twitter evolve as a company. We're going to see it evolve as a product. And I think we're going to see a lot more value from this particular product uh, as we as we kind of move forward in the days ahead. Yeah, he's promising uh, that, that it's going to evolve. But, Adam, let me ask you this. Uh, optimistic or pessimistic, do you have major concerns moving forward as well? Very optimistic. We're talking about a guy here who truly is an innovator. I mean, Elon Musk created reusable rockets that go to space. So, you know, we're talking about social media here. You might say this is a little bit beneath him, but when we're talking about the First Amendment, Elon Musk needs a marketplace of of good ideas and bad ideas alike uh, to drive his concepts forward. So I'm very, very optimistic that we now have an innovator running this company and we don't have the competing interests of, of Wall Street um, and frankly, some of the things that Jack Dorsey points to as the reason for, for uh, Twitter's, I would say, lack but, of success or but, its unimpressive growth. Yeah, but Adam, being optimistic, that as you are, are there areas that concern you as well? I, I would say the areas that concern me really are more, I would say, international and in and, and, and scope and depth. Uh, watching how Elon Musk navigates the, I would say, the, the more intricate laws over in the, in the EU in particular, uh, some of those laws do differ from what we have over here in the United States. So I think seeing how he navigates this kind of company um, is going to be interesting. We've seen Zuckerberg before Congress. We definitely saw Dorsey before Congress as well. 
Um, Elon Musk fielding the same kind of questions that were thrown at um, at some of those guys. It, it'll be different to see when when he's in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee answering questions about uh, you know people being censored or not censored. All right. Adam, thank you again. That's Adam Rosieri, digital marketing expert with Agency Partner Interactive. This is KNX In-Depth along with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. A volcano in Hawaii is getting people's attention in a big way. Again, officials now warning those on the big island that Mauna Loa could erupt and could erupt soon. Yeah, that's the largest active volcano in the world, by the way. It hasn't erupted since 1984. But if it does now, that could be really bad news. With us is Tracy Gregg, who's a professor at the University at Buffalo. She studies lava flows and has been to Hawaii many times to study the nearby Kilauea volcano. Another uh, expert on volcanoes, Ken Rubin, who's also a geochemist at the University of Hawaii. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Ken, let's start with you, because you're. Uh, which island are you on at the moment, by the way? I'm uh, on the island of Oahu, where Honolulu is located. Ah, okay. So what is the level of concern uh, amongst the people who are living nearby this volcano right now? Uh, well, I can't, I can't tell you, the, you know, to gauge what the general population is thinking, but I think the USGS Hawaii Volcano Observatory is doing the right thing, which is informing the public about the state of unrest, the changes the volcano has experienced in recent months with an uptick in seismic activity, as well as what we call inflation signals being measured at the summit of the volcano, and just making people aware of what hazards the volcano might present. It's erupted 33 times since uh, the 1840s. It uh, erupts fairly frequently, but as you noted in the intro, it hasn't erupted since um, 1984, and a lot of people have moved on to the island in that time period. So it stands to reason there are a fair number of people living in the potential path of a Mauna Loa lava flow who haven't experienced it or know much about the history of the volcano. Tracy, you've studied this a long time. Talk to us a bit about how experts know the potential danger, what they're observing, what kind of equipment do they use, uh, what what are they seeing so the way we understand or our, uh, our best way to understand the future behavior of a volcano is to look at its past behavior. And uh, Ken gave a great summary of the activity that Mauna Loa has presented over the, the last couple hundred years. Uh, when it erupts, it tends to erupt lava flows. So it's not going to, it's not likely to explode in a, in a Mount St. Helens kind of thing, but, but rather, um, going to erupt these lava flows. And we monitor or watch Mauna Loa uh, through many different mechanisms. Um, the ones that the USGS has been telling us about are the seismometers. These are instruments that measure earthquakes. And on Mauna Loa, the earthquakes that they're measuring seem to be related to magma, molten rock, pushing its way toward or closer to the surface. Um, and the other instrument that they rely on a lot is called a tilt meter and it does exactly what it sounds like it measures the ground slope or tilt um, and as magma gets pumped into the inside of a volcano it makes the um, sides of the volcano kind of swell outward that changes the slope usually makes the slope a little bit steeper um, and finally they use gps um, lasers <laughs> that shoot at, at targets 
to uh, measure if uh, cracks in the ground are, are opening or closing. So all of these instruments do a really good job of telling us what's happening inside the volcano. You know, Ken, uh, if it got to the point where they needed to ask people to move, at least temporarily, out of their homes, I suspect, like in other parts of the country, when these orders are given, some people leave and some people, I guess, elect to stay for one reason or another. Can can one easily sort of outrun a lava flow? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. It depends a lot on how close you are to the source of the, the what we call the vent, where the lava is coming out of the ground. It depends on the rate of supply of the magma. It depends on the slope. Uh, it just depends on how the magma uh, cools as lava as it flows across the surface. So in some cases, you can easily outrun a lava flow. In other cases, you can't. I would never recommend tempting fate and trying that. Um, you know, the way that the volcano has erupted in sort of three primary sectors, uh, southwestern sector uh, in the past, a northwestern sector, which happens to be um, the location where the earthquakes are being measured right now, and something more on the northeast, which points towards the town of Hilo. And um, in all three of those locations, there's uh, variations in ground slope and so forth, and more or less population. Presumably, um, if a fissure were to open up and a lava flow were to initiate, then there would be a lot more precision that the Volcano Observatory would be providing with respect to who is in danger. The um, observatory models ahead of time all of the lava flow paths, the potential paths, based on the topography of the land surface, and they can make fairly accurate predictions about where a lava flow will go, not necessarily when, that is something that they have to wait and see as they observe, but um, I would I would say that you know unlike a hurricane which might change its location or um, you know might be something that you can ride out if a lava flow is coming towards your domicile or business you need to get out of the way uh, the hazards are very intense and they're not something that you want to um, tempt fate with. All right, Ken Tracy, uh, both of you, thank you, Ken Rubin, a volcano expert. Uh, he's at the University of Hawaii. Uh, Tracy Gregg, professor at the University of Buffalo in New York. She studies lab of flows and has been to Hawaii studying Kilauea many times. Well, the music world mourning the death of early rock and roll icon Jerry Lee Lewis. He died at his home in Mississippi near Memphis at the age of 87. Yeah, Lewis became big back in the 1950s along with the likes of Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry. What a time that was. He was known for his energetic performances on the piano especially great balls of fire and a whole lot of shaking going on with us to talk about his life his legacy is pulitzer prize winning journalist and author of jerry lee lewis's own story rick bragg uh, rick thank you for joining us uh, i understand you you knew jerry lee lewis what he the mark he made on music we all know about that what was he like as a man well i did my interviews over uh, a couple of years, uh, mostly while he was uh, ill and in the bed. And uh, I'll never forget uh, starting a conversation with, so did I hear once that you, and he interrupted me and he said, yeah, I probably did. <laughs> uh, I, I think he, 
was one of those rare people who was walked through this world exactly the way that he wanted to. Didn't mean he didn't have fears. He had great fears about going to hell and, and other things. But Jerry Lee kind of did what he wanted to in this life. And tell us about his contribution to, to music and to rock and to country, because he was both, really. Yeah, he was one of the the last true great pioneers. Well, he was the last. Uh, he uh, watched Johnny Cash and Elvis and Little Richard and Fats Domino. You know, he watched all these greats just gradually fade away. Chuck Berry, who he had a terrible feuds with over the years but he watched them all go and again i'll never forget him lying there and saying you know who would have thought it'd be me you know who would have thought i would be the last because you know his obit's been written a dozen times um because of the way he lived his life but his his marriage of of blues and country and rockabilly and gospel. You know, he, he would play gospel and it would sound like it was coming from a honky tonk. And then he would play honky tonk and it had church in it. You know, Rick, it, it it's Jerry, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, it was a marriage, and it was interesting that you used the word marriage before, because it was a marriage, right, as first, that really brought what was a very uh, high career kind of crashing, right? Yeah, he, um, I don't know how many songs he had in, I think, what they used to call it, the Hot 100, um, but he had several, and Elvis really did drive to Sun Records in tears to tell Jerry Lee, just take it, you know? Or I think what he said was, you can have it, meaning the the crown. And of course, Elvis was going into the army and he really believed that Jerry Lee would just assume that, you know, that, shining place at the top of rock and roll and then jerry lee did what jerry lee does he did what he wanted to he married his 13 year old cousin he i'm sure he maybe gave a second or two of thought to whether or not it was a good idea but probably not any more than that and went to london where the British seem to have a whole lot less of a sense of humor about that kind of thing. And it was outed and Jerry Lee fell back down to earth pretty quickly. He went from, you know, the hierarchy of rock and roll to roaming the Midwest and two or three Cadillacs full of musicians playing honky tonks in Iowa. Rick, we're going to bring another voice into this conversation about Jerry Lee Lewis. And if there's anybody, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis was known for his energy on stage. 
If there's anybody in this city of Los Angeles who's known for their energy on the radio, that's Shotgun Tom Kelly, longtime radio DJ here in L.A., now has a show on Sirius XM. Shotgun, thanks for taking a moment for us. Your memories of the great Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I grew up. I grew up with Jerry Lee Lewis as a kid. You know what used to fascinate me on, on several of the uh, television shows that he was on? Uh, it was it was that I think we all were fascinated with the fact that he was so wild. He was really the bad boy of rock and roll. And when he used to play that piano and bring his foot up and start pounding on the keys, that was absolutely... I mean, I'd never seen any of that uh, as, a, <laughs> as a kid. Now, I was about... Oh, maybe uh, 12 or 13 years old at the time. But I thought this guy was great and uh, loved his records. You know, I read uh, uh, that he uh, influenced greatly Elton John's piano uh, playing. Is that right? Well, you know, that could be because, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to go see Elton John's uh, tour coming up here. Uh, and uh, I've noticed Elton when he plays on the piano. There is a touch of Jerry Lee Lewis there. I must agree with you. Okay. Uh, Shotgun, thank you for taking a couple minutes to speak with us on this, the, the passing of Jerry Lee Lewis. Again, this uh, Shotgun Tom Kelly, longtime radio DJ here in Los Angeles. You can now hear him on a Sirius XM. We're also joined by Rick Bragg, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author of Jerry Lee Lewis, His Own Story. That'll do it for uh, KNX In Depth today. And for the week, we're back again. Uh, for Charles, I'm Chris. We're back again Monday.